Now, Father, you give and take away. Blessed be your name. And uh, we long that your name will be blessed this morning as we study your scriptures. Would you speak to us? Would you please and be at work by your spirit in our hearts that we might hear your voice and long for Jesus and put money in its rightful place in our lives that we might have joy now and eternal pleasures with you forevermore. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And this is something of a, an unusual experience for me. Some of you will know I wrote a book a number of years ago called The Money Mentor. Among the things that has meant for me is that I've ended up speaking on the subject of money at churches all over the country. I might even have spoken to one or two of you previously in other churches that you've belonged to. I usually rolled out for Giving Sunday at churches. I guess it's easier for the vicar to, to put somebody else who doesn't get paid by the church at the front. But here you have me. This is a great privilege for me to be speaking to my church on a subject that I've become quite familiar with. Congregations, I think, are rightly wary of preachers standing up with the Bible in one hand and a giving tin in the other. And if we're honest, in Britain we're doubly wary because we've been raised never to talk about money, politics and religion, and here we are talking about at least two of those in one service. Well, I know this is Giving Sunday, and you'll be speaking on the, the subject of giving to the church a little bit later. I'm not going to talk about giving this morning. Uh, I'm going to go for something much more fundamental than uh, whether you and how much you give to the church. Uh, the Bible has a lot more to say about money than simply where we give it. And if we're honest, I think some of the other teaching in the Bible is a lot more penetrating and somewhat painful for us. So I want to go right to the core of who we are and ask this question. What is your attitude towards money? See, the Bible knows that Christians can be people who are guilty of the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a warning to the church. Not having money, you can have lots of money and not love money, but the love of money is a gateway to all kinds of moral failure and pain. So we've got to be careful around money, whether we have lots or have little. And so here is my question as we begin. What is your attitude towards money? Jesus says in Matthew 6, doesn't he? Uh, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. They are opposed to each other. So what is your attitude to money? And look at verse 10 of our passage this morning. Jesus could have plucked those very words from this passage. Whoever loves money never has enough. Two paths therefore lie open before us this morning. To love God or to love money. On the one side, God lays a promise before us, his presence and grace with us now, and pleasures forevermore at his side, where Christ is when he returns. And you'll have heard that lots if you've been with us as a regular of the church. We, we preach about that an awful lot. On the other side is money, which promises the same pleasures now. Two paths. And the, the aim of this talk is very simple. I want you to go away from here today utterly persuaded that the love of money must be avoided at all costs. 
You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose. This is not a passage about whether you have lots of money or no money. The same point is at work. It's about the destructive love of money, which you can have whether you're completely broke or a billionaire. What does a person gain? See, the problem in our passage this morning is this. Do you have enough? It's there at the end of verse 9. Just look down with me. The king himself profits from the fields. Profits. At the same word, with a slightly different translation, is there in verse 11. What benefit are they to their owners? It's there in a slightly more hidden form in verse 15. Where he says, men take nothing, literally no profit, no gain, no benefit from their toil. It's there in verse 16 with the central question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. What do they gain? Four times, four different words, same word in the the Hebrew. When you add up everything that a person has and everything that a person does, is there any profit? What does it all add up to? And the question for our passage this morning is this. Is there any profit from loving money? Is loving money worth it in the end? It's an important question, isn't it? Because you have to know which path is worth taking. Serve God, serve money. Jesus says, follow me, and though this life might be hard, we've just sung. Good days, bad days. You'll have every good thing for eternity. That's what's on on the one path. Money says, love me, serve me, I will make you rich and you can have everything. Not not yet, you understand, but, but soon it'll come in this life. The love of money is a rival to the love of God. It's a rival gospel to the Christian gospel. And the question is, does it provide what it promises? Is there... So what we're doing this morning will be painful. Uh, The love of money runs like uh, the blood in the veins of the city in which we live. Uh, We're bound to be a little bit stained by it. Perhaps uh, we're, we're tapped into it like dialysis. And so I want you to take a long, hard look at yourself this morning and ask, has the love of money taken hold of me? Am I in danger of taking the wrong path because of its temptations? And I want to begin this morning with an observation. That's the first point will be on the screens and on your handouts. The love of money makes us immoral. That's verses 8 and 9. Justice. We love justice. Justice is given by righteous men and women, good people in positions of authority, acting for the common good. And as a society, we have checks and balances, don't we? So that if one official goes rogue, they're being watched over by another. So there are courts, and then there are higher courts, and then there's the Supreme Court, and there's the Court of Appeal. And there's lots of checks and balances to make sure that justice is done. Verse 8. When the poor are oppressed and justice is denied, we trust in the system, don't we, to get things Right, but, but what happens if the love of money infects the system? What if 
the heads of righteous men are turned towards money, that the politician who sells his vote in Parliament to lobby groups, the judge who is bought by the criminal gang and, and lets them get off. What if even the king is corrupt, the one who's supposed to guarantee justice, at least in the society that's being written about here? That's what's being said in verse 9. What happens if the love of money runs right through the system? Well, we should not be surprised, verse 8. It happens everywhere. Verse 9, everyone is in it for profit. What do I get from being a good person? Men are corrupted and justice is corrupted for personal gain. And he says, don't be surprised. But learn this lesson, he says. Love of money undoes godliness. It works against God. Here's a quote I found just this week in a book I've been reading. Uh, it's a great quote uh, about um, Henry VII, written in 1540 by a, a wonderfully named chap called Polydore Virgil. It's a great name. Then he had a name people in the 16th century. And uh, Virgil uh, describes many uh, qualities in Henry, VIII, uh, Henry VII, Henry VIII's dad. And then he says this, All these virtues were obscured by avarice, greed which is surely a bad enough vice in a private individual for whom it, it forever torments. In a monarch, indeed, it may be considered the worst vice, since it is harmful to everyone and distorts those qualities of trustfulness, justice and integrity by which the, by which the state must be governed. When the king is corrupted by the love of money, everything else goes by the by. See, money doesn't corrupt society, but the love of money corrupts everybody and everything. And it's not just something that happens in absolute monarchies, as in England in the 16th century, is it? It happens when your boss puts self-interest ahead of the good of the company or the good of the people he's employing. It's the banker fixing LIBOR rates to make a quick buck at the expense of hundreds of other people. A just system becomes unfair from top to bottom because of the love of money. But it's not just systems in society that get corrupted, is it? It's Christians. Because it's not just legal justice that is corrupted, but social goods. It's the, the love of self and the way we think of money as enriching me that means I won't use that money to serve others. I'm selfish, and so I don't care for that person. I don't look after my brothers and sisters. I don't care for my parents. I don't care for the homeless and the sick and the needy. Selfish gain drove Eve and to take the fruit in the garden. Ever since, it has run through the blood of every human to serve ourselves over others. The love of God says, be like Christ, sacrifice your ambitions, take up your cross, love other people. And the love of money says, trample others to get what you want. Don't do what is right, do what serves your interests. Love of money makes us immoral. So what is your attitude to money? What do you dream about? Growing in grace or, or growing in wealth? Do we long to grow in godliness 
are all possessions. What do we do with our wealth when we have it? How much do God's concerns shape our concerns? Do we make radically different lifestyle choices to those of our peers because God means more than the money does? We cannot love God and money. Something's going to give. In every day, in our daily decisions, big and small, the choice to do the godly thing is going to be up against the choice to do the selfish thing. That's when you know what you're truly living for, which path you've decided to take. Will the love of money strangle the love of God, or will it be the other way around? There's no compromise. Well, to help you decide, our teacher this morning wants to look at, at the implications and the working out of loving money. He wants to show us that it's not worth it. Even for what you have in this life, it's just not worth it. There is no gain. And you're unjust as well. So the first thing, or the second point on your handout, the love of money is unrequited. That's an old word, isn't it? Verses 10 to 12. You'll remember from Romeo and Juliet, if you did that at school, I did, uh, and it stuck with me. Romeo begins the, the play pining for Rosaline. She has no interest in him, but he's besotted with her. He's filled with longing for her. His love is unrequited. That is, it is never satisfied because it never receives the object of his affections. And so it is with money. If we love money, we may get rich. We may get a lot of money. But we will never achieve the true aim of having enough money. The principle's there in verse 10, isn't it? It's a great verse to, to stick away in your head and your heart. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That is, whoever. It is true for every human being, however rich they become. You may have an awful lot of money, but you will never have gain. It doesn't matter how rich you are, you'll never be satisfied. The, the oil billionaire J.D. Rockefeller was uh, one of the richest men in his day, the third richest man in the world, I think. And, and one day his accountant said to him, J.D., how much money is enough money? And he said, wisely, I think, always just a little bit more. You're never quite there. If you think money can be enough, you will never have enough. He was right. Money can buy you many, many things. It can bring you great pleasures. Beautiful holidays, a lovely home, a nice car. But it cannot satisfy. Because ultimately it cannot deal with the problems of suffering and death. Bad stuff happens to everybody. Stub toes to heart attacks. Everybody has to face pain. If money is going to bring us lasting happiness, if it's going to endure, it has to deal with that. It has to deal with the things the gospel deals with. It has to deal with our sin. It has to deal with the curse. It has to deal with death. It has to deal with our eternity. And it cannot do it. It's a false gospel. The one who loves money will always be discontent because this world is cursed. God has made it so. And we're still destined to die. doesn't matter how much you have. Of course, the day of finally 
being satisfied is always dangled, isn't it? If you have just a little bit more, then you'll be happy. Then everything will be fine. All the sad feelings will go away and you'll just be in bliss. It's there, dangled like a carrot. It's the promise that money holds and it never delivers. It's always tomorrow and never today. Now let me be clear, that doesn't mean you can't be rich. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy money. The Bible's pretty clear, I think, that poverty is not better than wealth. But what it means is this. That all the enjoyment money can bring does not last. Those wonderful happy moments are followed by the sad moments. At best, money is able to paper over some of the cracks. To smooth out some of the bumps in the road. But it cannot deal with the mess our world is in. By itself, your income is never enough, however much you earn. But our teacher wants to go even deeper. He wants to dig a little bit further. Let's suppose that you do earn silly money. You've got footballers' wages. Okay. Have you noticed verse 11? The more you have, the more quickly it slips through your fingers. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. Whether that's the relative who comes out of the woodwork. You've not seen them for 20 years, but they say, could you give us a hand with the mortgage? Or, or the accountants, the lawyers, the security guards, the staff you employ, all the, all the people who want to take... It's the man who sells you the bigger house, the cars, the yacht, the the second home. Having more money means spending more money. That's the way the world is, isn't it? More in, more out, and all you get to do is watch the pennies trickle through your fingers. Verse 11. Of course, some of that spending will be enjoyable, particularly if shopping is your thing. It's not really my thing. Uh, But what about the stress of being rich, he says. What about the stress of actually having too much money? Verse 12. Look at the second half of verse 12. As for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. See, being a rich person, you can have the the best possible mattress, the silk sheets, the the perfectly air-conditioned bedroom, you know, the the really thick blinds that means you're not woken up when the sun comes up at 4.30 in the morning. You can have all of that. And yet you stress. The anxiety. What about thieves? What about the state of the markets? Uh, Will my investments pay dividends this year? Uh, Are house prices going up or down? The worry, the anxiety, the the stress of having things and potentially losing things causes sleepless nights. And notice there's a contrast here. The beginning of verse 12. There's a contrast with the labourer. And perhaps the image here is of the labourer who works for the rich man. He works hard, perhaps he's on the farm, and maybe he's not particularly well rewarded. He doesn't necessarily have enough to eat. Sometimes he goes to bed hungrier than he'd like. The rich man never has that problem. He always has steak on his plate. But the poor man sleeps. He sleeps the sleep of a man who's done a hard day's work, has a bed, has food in his stomach, and doesn't have anything else to stress about hasn't got possessions to worry about, isn't worried about the thief breaking in because it's not even his house. And he doesn't worry about running a multinational corporation. You see, we like to think that having more money means life is easier. And it may be more comfortable. There's no doubt we can make life more comfortable. But is it better? Is there any gain? The promise of money 
is that everything will be better tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. The anxiety, the stress, the hard work, they're the down payment you make today for the future that never comes. You just have to keep on paying and paying. And maybe it's true, your house gets bigger, your wallet bulges, but if money is your God, it will never be enough. If you add up all the pleasures of the rich, what do they come to? Has it led to gain? What's the benefit in the end? It's hard to see this, isn't it? The elite, the the ultra-celebs with their sun-drenched Monaco lifestyles, we can think, gosh, if I had what they have, if I had the leisure they've got, if I had the money and resources, and we forget to notice how many of them are not happy. How many celebrity marriages break just as easily as those of uh, the poorer people? How many of them end up in rehab because they've turned to substance abuse and alcohol to drown the sorrows because they've realised the money cannot do it? They've climbed the ladder of wealth and fame and found that they're still here. They haven't stepped out of the world. It's still cursed. It's still broken. And money cannot solve that. It's a false gospel. No amount of money can deal with the curse that God has deliberately placed on the world. And chasing wealth just brings many extra frustrations with it. So let me ask you honestly. Do you have enough money to put food on the table? A roof over your head? And yet, do you find that you worry about money? You have nothing to really worry about, but you still worry about money. Are you thankful or are you anxious? That'll indicate which path you're in danger of stepping on. Moreover, our third point, money will leave you in the end, verses 13 through 15. Verses 13 and 16 are both introduced by uh, this idea of a grievous evil, a terrible thing that happens in the world. Two horrible truisms of life under the sun. Life in a fallen world. What can money give us in this world that will last? What's worth actually having anyway? So our teacher says, consider the dilemma of the rich man. He's got loads of money, verse 13. But he's got to make a decision. Does he hoard the wealth and miss out on that investment opportunity? Hoarded to his uh, harm. Or on the other hand, does he, uh, does he invest and potentially lose that wealth through some misfortune? The stress, the, the bitterness, the worry. Am I missing out on opportunities? And then on the other side, I've taken the opportunity. It turned out to be a much riskier venture than I thought and I've lost everything. Invest or not to invest. Stick or twist. It doesn't matter. Because the only certain thing about your future is this. As everyone comes into the world, so they depart. Verse 15. Nothing. You, you, you come naked into the world, don't you? You, you come out as a baby. Someone, we've had some babies amongst us very recently. They come out very pink and empty-handed. There's no pockets. And in the same way, we go into the ground, don't we? Verse 15. They take nothing, no benefit, no gain, nothing from their toil. Do you see? 
Out of everything, from your birth to your death, you may have many pleasurable experiences. But add up all the toil, the tears, the stress, the office politics, the the shrewd investments, the sacrifices we make, and for what? In the end, you're still a body in the ground. And it doesn't matter whether you're a rich body in the ground or a poor body in the ground, you're still a body in the ground. You haven't solved the problem of death. In fact, the more you have, the more you lose in the end. Which path? has a gospel that works. See, the promise of money is always frustration now for gain in the future. But do you see, in the end, you have no future here. You're going to die. Some of you are quite a lot younger than me, and you probably feel like you're not. Let me be sure you are going to die. I hope you know that. I hope that it plays on your mind. I hope that you think about it. Every single day, you're a step closer to that day. But you're no closer to being satisfied by money. It doesn't work. Now let me be clear. Having money is not a bad thing. There have been some wonderful extremely rich Christians in the past who've done enormously good things with their wealth. Having money is not a problem. It's a blessed thing. And the Bible teaches us to be thankful for every blessing. It's not a bad thing. But the love of money, rather than the love of God, to take the gift from God of that money and to turn our backs on him will actually make us miserable. It becomes it goes from being a blessed gift thing to being a curse because we stop counting our blessings we stop being thankful for every good thing we have and we start counting the things we don't have do you see even if we don't fall away as christians even if we manage to stay on the right path while tempted off we're going to find ourselves robbed of satisfaction of of thankfulness of happiness of joy in this life because of our lack of contentment. The love of money feeds on uh, discontent. Not only do we gain nothing that lasts, therefore, finally, we actually lose out. Our fourth point, love of money robs you of present joy. That's verses 16 and 17. Just look down over the page with me. We've already seen, haven't we, in verse 12, that um, the contrast between the labourer who sleeps well and the rich person who, because of his anxiety and stress, doesn't sleep very well. And let's be honest, who doesn't love a really good night's sleep? Okay, We've all had those bad night's sleep and you feel terrible afterwards. We all love a good night's sleep. Well, verse 17 brings that home in a different way. So verse 16 summarises our conclusion so far. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? We work for the unattainable. We, we chase the wind. What's the point? When we, we look back at the end of our lives, if we indeed know that it's the end of our life, we look back, what are we going to say? <coughs> that we spend our whole life chasing after a phantom, a, a fantasy, a pipe dream. Somehow I can make this world better all by myself. Well, what did it cost us? <clears throat> if that's the path you take, verse 17, all their days they eat in darkness with great frustration affliction and anger all their days do you see that it's not a day off from being stressed it's not a day off from anxiety it's not a day off where you finally feel like i've reached it i've got there i finally fixed the problem 
The joyful, contented, happy life never arrives for the person who loves money. Instead, even our eating, another one of those sort of fundamental joys of life, is accompanied by frustration, affliction, anger. These are the emotions of someone who's never satisfied. However big the steak on the plate is, the internal anguish of still being in a fallen world never goes away. We're always still looking for the next thing, the biggest win. And isn't that what London's like? It's how Londoners are. That's sleepless nights, miserable mealtimes, a life that may be full of happy moments. Are those happy days, the pay rise, the holiday, that relationship, and yet fundamentally, it is unsatisfying. Which is why your colleagues still get up at five o'clock in the morning to dash into the office, to, to burn the candle at both ends in order to try and win something. They never get off the treadmill. They never arrive. Why? Because we're asking too much of this world. We expect it to be perfect. We think that we can, if we just have enough money, we can fix the problem, we can fix the world. That we can somehow undo the fall and the curse of God on the planet. Fix all the brokenness. We think we can do it ourselves. We, we think we can do it without a saviour. It's a false gospel. Do you see? And we can't. The love of money is a false gospel. God has deliberately cursed the world, made it impossible, impossible for us to find anything in the world that will truly, lastingly satisfy. Happy moments, no enduring satisfaction. We were made for eternity and nothing less than eternity will satisfy us. We were made for pleasures beside Christ forevermore and anything short of that is going to leave us hollow. And nothing here lasts. We won't last. This building won't last. This city won't last. Nothing lasts. You'll be grateful to hear this talk won't last as well. The promise that money can last is a lie. Do not believe it. It is a lie and it is leading millions of Londoners to hell. In misery. Not only does the, the love of money not satisfy, but it changes us. Think back to verses 8 and 9. Remember the unjust system that it produces. We become part of the curse. Do you want to be part of the curse for other people? If you love money, you will treat people badly. You become part of the problem, not part of the solution. But God says, I will definitely give you a renewed world. Perfect in every way, without spot or blemish, without tears or mourning or crying at all. And it will last forever. Sin, curse, death, the things that make this life impossibly difficult sometimes. The things that cannot be fixed by money, I will fix them. That is gain. If we are looking for gain under the sun, we will not find it. We must look to Christ. God says, today I am giving you many, many blessings to enjoy. I give you food and drink and shelter and friends and a church to love you and a future hope. All things that you should be receiving with thanksgiving. And if you are not, it is because you have a false love. The world says, I can give you future blessings in this world. All you have to do is sacrifice your eternal blessings with Christ and your present joy 
at receiving good things from him. Give those things up. Submit to stress and sleepless nights. Work yourself to the bone. Sacrifice your godliness for personal gain. But I won't deliver. I'll promise and promise and promise and I will never come through. Friends, two paths sit before us this morning. And one question will decide our course. What will your attitude to money be? Will it be your God asking everything from you, making grand promises and never delivering? Or will we submit to God? Let Jesus be our God. Take our money and serve him with it. Receive every good gift from him with thankfulness. Looking forward to the day when every problem in this world will be dealt with. Not by our ability, not by our money, but by his infinite power and grace. You have to choose. Right now, you have to choose. You can't try and walk on two paths that are diverging so dramatically you are going to split yourself in half and it isn't comfortable. You have to choose. Now, let me say, if you're somebody here this morning who has lived for money and you have reached perfect contentment in your life, then please ignore me, uh, because clearly I have nothing to say to you. But I don't think there's a single person in the world who's at that point. But if you have pursued money in any way to make you happy, and it's left you miserable and anxious and afraid, if you find that there's very little thanksgiving in your life, that you've given up joy in the present for things that are future, then please can I ask you to repent? That is just to turn around. Come off the path that you're on and come on the right path to God. Turn to him. Fill your mind with the certainty of a glorious future where neither sin nor suffering nor death can take away any of the good things that God is giving. That is gain. So fill your mind with the reality that the, 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 the pursuit of money is a lie. And let it lose its lust. Let it lose its grip on you. See it for what it is. And then watch. Watch as God transforms your life. Teaches you thanksgiving in the present. For, for the many good things that you already have. Teaches you contentment in every situation. Learn to loosen your grip on money so that you can turn it to serve him. Rather than trying to make yourself its servant. Friends, I think this passage is crystal clear. But the pursuit of money is a path of suffering that ends in death. The pursuit of Christ is a path of joy and thankfulness today and certain future glory forever. There's only one gospel there. There's only good news on one of those paths. Which will you choose? Let me pray for us.